This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 15, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The National Security Agency allowed a contractor to walk away with what's described as the keys to the kingdom. But the NSA also assures Americans not to worry about the safety of their data. In Glenn Greenwald's new book, No Place to Hide, he traces one of the most significant stories in recent years, how Americans learned about an extensive surveillance operation that routinely spies on U.S. citizens without suspicion. We spoke to Greenwald yesterday. General Keith Alexander in 2008 suggested, and some said it was a sort of an offhanded comment, that essentially no internet-based conversations should go uncollected, that all signals all the time. And uh, it appears that that is the way, the direction that they've been moving in. So where is the momentum in terms within the NSA and outside the NSA on continuing that process? That is not just something that Keith Alexander said in sort of an offhanded way at a 2008 visit. Well, to that's, the I think GCHP, that's how they characterized how they, it. Right. No, right. exactly. That's how they tried because the, because the, the quote was documented and they couldn't deny it. So they tried to claim that it was just sort of an offhanded quip, um, almost said in jest. And so one of the things I tried to do in the book was to convey just how pervasive this motto was um, in terms of what the NSA sees as its mission which is not this directed, targeted, focused um, system that's designed to monitor the communications of particular people, but instead is literally to turn the internet into a limitless system of, of monitoring and surveillance. And it isn't just an aspiration institutionally. It's something they're extremely close to fulfilling. Um, I mean, they are already collecting so much data um, that their primary problem at this point, just technologically, is finding a, a way to store it all. Even though gargantuan sums of data can be stored on tiny little thumb drives, the amount that they collect is so enormous. Billions, literally, every day of emails and telephone calls and other internet activities that they're building a, a sprawling new facility in Utah just to be able to store it all. And, and the thing that's, I think, most notable about that is not just the deceit that has gone on about what this collected all motto is and and what their mission is. Um, But this idea of collecting everything was pioneered by General Alexander when he was deployed in the Iraq War in Baghdad. Um, And that's when he first developed it. So what we really have now is this this communications strategy that was developed for an enemy population in a time of war in a foreign nation that has now been imported onto American soil and aimed at our own population. And I think that's uh, sort of an expression of just how radical it is. When Susan Rice was ambassador to the United Nations, she's now a national security advisor, uh, you say in your book that she asked the NSA for specific uh, negotiation methods used by uh, various people who uh, work at the UN on behalf of various countries. Whatever you think of the UN and the value of the debates that take place there, that's a very spurious use of our national security apparatus. Is there clear evidence that that has taken place at lower levels of government? Oh, yeah. Um, You know, there was this really um, revealing and and borderline humorous episode when I started doing the reporting um, in Brazil. Uh, with Globo News, the the largest uh, media outlet in Brazil, on on NSA spying on the Brazilian population, and at the time, the U.S. ambassador to Brazil was was someone a diplomat named Thomas Shannon, um, and he was sort of the point person to try and tamp down the the outrage that was erupting there over these revelations, and kept assuring the public that this was only used to protect Americans and was only used in a targeted way to 
to to try and uh, detect terrorist plots. And then one of the stories we did after that was a a memo that's amazing to read, um, where there was a conference. Uh, regional conference organized by the very popular former president, Brazilian President Lula, um, to have a financial summit where countries in the hemisphere, including the United States, would come together and negotiate economic and trade agreements. And there was a memo from Thomas Shannon thanking the NSA for the outstanding surveillance that they performed on this entire conference that enabled the United States to learn the negotiating strategies of all of the parties to the conference. So the same person who had defended U.S. surveillance um, three years earlier when he was the assistant undersecretary of state uh, for Latin America, um, was effusively praising the NSA for invading an economic summit. And that's, you know, the the culture of the U.S. government is that whatever communications they're interested in, no matter what kind they are, no matter to what purpose, um, are things that they not only can invade but should and will invade. We've learned a lot more about how NSA and related agencies use the word relevance. And I think this speaks to that a little bit. That is, if it could be relevant in the future, it's relevant now. I think it just speaks to this kind of broader point about how people who are in power come to think about what is justified in the exercise of their power. So if, for example, there's a certain line that is drawn for them um, and they find some cause at some point to move really close to that line and then even step on the line and maybe inch over it, um, once they've inched over it, there will then be another occasion when some other situation arises that convinces them that they can inch a little further still and encroaching on what had previously been prohibited territory. And then at some point, the practice of encroachment becomes normalized because they do it. Uh, there's no accountability or punishment for it. Um, and they think it's being put towards good ends as long as it's in, it's in their hands. And I think you absolutely see this kind of extreme mission creep within the NSA where the idea originally was that we need to enhance and augment our surveillance capabilities. And the more it got enhanced and augmented, um, the enhancement and the augmentation became the end in itself. You don't even need anymore at the NSA a specific rationale. Um, for collecting communications other than the fact that they have the capability to do so. And so relevance essentially means communications that exist in the world. That is relevant to the NSA's mission. Bill Niskanen was chairman of the Cato Institute for many years and he wrote a lot about bureaucracy. And uh, he argued essentially that, look, bureaucrats are trying to maximize something. They're not in the private sector necessarily. So they uh, are trying to maximize something, be it budget, be it uh, people under their uh, command, that sort of thing. Can we forgive the NSA for just being another bureaucracy that's trying to uh, maximize either its budget or the kinds of things that it's trying to collect? You know, I don't think that the NSA should be thought about as in, in isolation. Um, they're not some uniquely malevolent agency within this benevolent executive branch. They're very much just an appendage of this overall machine. And and one of the things they say is like, you know, is, is look, we were just doing what we were asked to do. And, and in some sense, that's not untrue. Um, you know, in the wake of 9-11, uh, the executive branch went completely insane and Congress went along with them in terms of the idea that executive power ought to be limitless, that there ought to be no balancing any longer of uh, civil liberties and, and, and basic privacy rights versus um, things that are ostensibly done in the name of security. So it just kind of became this institutional inertia that it kept growing because it was told to grow. But the one thing I would say is that you can't underestimate as well the profit motive that has driven a lot of this. Um, there's a $75 billion budget 
that the NSA has, and and roughly 70% of it, according to the journalist Tim Shorek, um, goes into the coffers of, of private corporations like General Dynamics or Booz Allen Hamilton and these kind of, you know, this private sector aspect to what has become the security state because so much of it is privatized. So when you have that kind of profit motive um, that the people who exercise great influence over the government are receiving and there's this revolving door constantly between these corporations and the Pentagon and the national security state to ensure they constantly wield great influence, that too then becomes its own uh, driving force, which, which is this private sector profit motive profiteering essentially through crony capitalism um, off these ever-expanding government programs. Uh, you talked about these uh – the, the corporations that are connected to this process at all, but a lot of them have lost a great deal of trust of their customers. A lot of companies that do business overseas have lost uh, relationships or had relationships justified. Is there anything that the private sector can do absent some sort of reform at the federal level and by foreign governments to win back the trust of their own customers? Well, I mean, they they are suffering now. They weren't before because it was all done in, in secret and they were, had great benefits to cooperating with the NSA in the form of enhanced relationships with the US government, which is incredibly lucrative for these companies. Um, but you're right. They do now perceive it as a, a genuine threat to their future prosperity because companies like Facebook and Google and Yahoo, in order to sustain profitability, have to be global companies, not domestic companies. And you already have German companies and Brazilian companies and Japanese companies advertising for new customers on the grounds that you shouldn't give your private data to Google and Facebook, um, but should give it to us instead because we won't turn it over to the NSA like they will. And so this perception that American technology is now unsafe um, is truly threatening. Um, you know, but as far as what they can do, American tech companies exert enormous influence in Washington. I mean, Silicon Valley is probably the most important financial backer of the Democratic Party and certainly was of the Obama campaign. You know, I, I laughed uh, a month and a half ago, we published this story about the NSA is compromising of, of certain servers on Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg that night wrote a, a post on Facebook saying, I was so angry by what this story revealed that I called Obama the president and, and I expressed to him my indignation. And the fact that he could just be angry and get the president on the phone at will um, without having to wait very much time is an indication of the power of that sector. And so if they are serious as opposed to just pretending to be serious about imposing some constraints on this surveillance state just out of self-interest, um, there will certain – that's probably one of the most promising ways that reform will happen. More promising than public outrage, you think, these sort of titans of Silicon Valley pushing back against people that they might otherwise be funding for political campaigns? <laughs> yeah. You know, people – Public outrage has a great effect if you live in a responsive democracy. Um, but when you live in essentially an oligarchy, um, the tycoons and, and business titans exert much greater influence um, and matter much more than, than public outrage. I mean public outrage, the problem with public outrage is that you have two political parties that compete for power that almost never diverge in any meaningful way on these questions. Um, and so public outrage can't find any vehicle for expressing itself in terms of forcing meaningful change. Um, you know, you do have some politicians in both parties who are trying to ride the crest of the ang anger over this surveillance. You have um, Democratic and Republican Senate candidates in the West and the Midwest actually campaigning actively against the NSA, something inconceivable even two or three years ago. Um, but by and large, you know, the U.S. government is constructed to prevent any serious fundamental reform. It's designed to placate public outrage through symbolic gestures um, if, in terms of public outrage. But I think the tech sector can actually make a difference. 
the U.S. government cooperates with a lot of governments. It spies on governments that it cooperates with, spies on governments it doesn't cooperate with. Uh, first of all, minimization is a process that uh, NSA is supposed to go through with respect to documents. But to what extent is the NSA providing unminimized surveillance data to foreign governments? One of the stories that we published that I think got the, 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 the least amount of attention given the significance of the story it was one that we published at The Guardian, I believe, in September about a, a memorandum of understanding between the Israeli uh, intelligence agency and the United States government under which the U.S. government provides large amounts of pure raw communications, entirely unminimized communications intelligence about American citizens, collected from American citizens to the Israelis. And this memorandum of understanding was designed to provide some safeguards telling the Israelis what they can and can't do with this unminimized data. They certainly share large amounts of unminimized data with their closest surveillance partners in the so-called Five Eyes Alliance, which are the English-speaking countries of the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, and, and even within the NSA, I mean, this idea of minimization um, – the, the primary defense of the NSA publicly is, yes, we collect all of your data and all of your calls and emails, but you need not worry because we have these rigorous controls and it's all tightly managed. And there's so many things that disprove that, the leading example of which is that Edward Snowden sat within the system for many months and downloaded untold tens of thousands of their most sensitive documents right under their noses and they had no idea that he was doing it. And even now, after spending tens of millions of dollars to investigate, they still have no idea what he took. So that gives you a very clear indication of how it's the opposite of a tightly controlled system. Abuse is you know, rampant and easy to, to perform and, and minimization should provide no guarantees to anybody of any sort of assurances. But General Alexander said at some point we can audit any of our guys at any time. And it's true, they, they can, although they seem to have a really hard time auditing what Edward Snowden did. Um, but one of the things that, that actually made Edward Snowden come forward is the ease of how the system can be abused. And what he was would explain and has explained is that if you're sitting at your the, your desk and you have access to programs like XKeyscore and other of their critical search programs, you can literally enter an email address um, click on a pre-populated pull-down menu called justifications and you just sort of click one of the items like this is a terrorist, this is an agent of a foreign power, whatever. Um, and then you hit search and it's there's no audit and it returns all of the, the emails that you want from the past that are stored and then all the ones in the future so you have real-time surveillance. Um, and that was what led to his famous uh, quote that I – sitting at my desk, I could eavesdrop anyone, even the president, if I had a, a, a specific email address. And you know, one of the things that bothered him so much was not just that there wasn't a pre-search audit but that even the post-search auditing was extremely sporadic. There's no auditing team. It's a manager who has a huge number of other responsibilities, one of which is auditing, random audits of these searches. And he said that when they would find one that looked a little bit tenuous – it would never be along the lines of we should investigate this person or see if there was abuse. It would be let's sit down and figure out how to get this paperwork right so that it looks kosher and and legal. That was the full extent of auditing to the extent it ever happened, which is very rare. You've been fairly critical of uh, Hillary Clinton uh, recently and I'll minimize your words here. You called her a hawk and a neocon practically. Right. What do we know based on anything she's said uh, uh, about how she would wield these surveillance authorities if she were president? I don't think she's spoken very much about specific surveillance questions. Um, 
she, unlike President Obama, actually voted against the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. Or at least she voted against the telecom immunity portion of it. Um, but by then, that was just sort of a, a kind of uh, symbolic gesture since she had lost the primary. Um, she did recently go on this sort of unhinged rant about Edward Snowden, um, condemning him as a traitor, implying that he was a spy working for Russia, um, and vehemently defending the NSA programs, including the one that a federal court judge in, in Washington found violated the constitutional rights of, of millions of Americans. And I think Hillary's career in general um, has been very much a, a an ardent defender um, of the post-9-11 security excesses of the United States, not only the famous vote in support of the Iraq War, um, but all of the CIA and NSA programs that that have followed. And and I think once she is in charge of those programs, um, the likelihood that she would be in favor of any curbs on them is vanishingly small. Are there lawmakers who are working on this who you think just really understand very clearly the stakes of getting reform of these surveillance authorities right? Who really people who really understand it? Yeah, I think there's several senators who who are reasonably good on those questions, um, such as Ron Wyden and, and Mark Udall and Rand Paul, um, and a few others from both parties. I think there are House members who who are excellent, like uh, Justin Amash and and John Conyers, who co-sponsored the bill to defund the NSA. And this is one of the things that gives me the most hope is they're really this is one of the few few issues that has caused an enormous amount of controversy that is not predictable um, in terms of how opinion breaks down by either partisan or ideological division. Uh, I would say that in fact it's almost 50-50. If you look at who is supportive of Edward Snowden and the reporting that we've done, um, I would say my most vociferous critics and his are probably Democrats um, because there's a Democrat in the White House. Um, even though when I was doing the same work during the Bush years, they were my greatest supporters. Um, the To the extent there is a, a predictable metric um, of reaction, it probably is age group more than anything else where younger people tend to be extremely supportive of the disclosures, whereas older people tend to be more wary of them, probably because of the views of the role of the internet and its importance in our lives. But um, the fact that there is this sort of uh, coalition of disparate forces, um, and, and if anything, it's sort of an outsider-insider dichotomy, um, I think is really encouraging. One of the concerns that Ed Snowden expressed to you was that he would provide all this information, uh, all of these stories would be published, the public would be made aware of all of this, and it would effectively be all for naught. Right. That even if there was some outrage over it, that step step one being outrage, step two being reform. Uh, where are we there in, in your estimation? The outrage is there. It's palpable and maybe you're not the right guy to ask about how effective that's going to be. But you know, where, where do you see it going? Well, actually his concern was slightly different, which was his concern was actually that there would be these revelations and the, the public would react with indifference so that they would sort of tell themselves, I assume this was already happening. I'm probably not the person who they're interested in and therefore I don't care. And it would just sort of flop onto the public – into the public discourse and people would just move on. Um, and that clearly has not happened. As you said, there's outrage, sustained outrage around the world. I mean the book tour I'm doing is going to take me to I think, you know, 
11 different countries. The book is translated already into nine or 10 languages because there is this global interest because the internet is something global. And when we were sitting in Hong Kong anticipating the effects of what might happen and thinking about how we could um, maximize the interest in the story, what has happened exceeded our wildest dreams, even in the best case scenario. So from that perspective, he's extremely gratified. I think as far as the changes that are going to come, you know, you don't change the American national security state, this enormous behemoth, behemoth um, instantaneously or overnight. I mean, the reason that you talk about it as being powerful is because it wields power and the nature of its power means that it is can fortify itself against even sustained global public outrage for a good period of time. I think the most significant... Uh, transformation is in the way that people around the world think about a whole variety of issues, including the importance of privacy in the digital age, the dangers of allowing governments to exercise great power in the dark, the role of journalism vis-a-vis the state, um, the role that the United States has been playing in the world. And once you start affecting consciousness, public consciousness in that way, um, I can't tell you exactly how it will play out in terms of the changes that will take place, but I think it's a very safe bet that there will be significant changes that come from all that. Uh, you take a particular chapter in the book to talk mostly about the reactions of other members of the media to you, to these revelations, to these stories. Obviously, I think there's probably some jealousy associated with, with that. Mm -hmm. I used to be a reporter and it burned me up and somebody got a better right. story than I did. Uh, but it's also, I think, in part, just in some ways an inability to deal with uh, the substance of what you're talking about. And is that, do you think that's part of the part of what drove the I, I think, reaction? I think there are a lot of complicated factors. Um, you know, aside from the jealousy, because pe you know people break big stories all the time and aren't treated with enormous hostility by other journalists, at least not in public, maybe pri privately. But they're certainly not called non-journalists or. Um, or, or, or criminals who belong in prison the way that I was by several uh, uh, guiding – leading lights of, of the journalistic world. So I think there's something else going on besides that. Um, and, and one of the things I think is going on is that there's a, a fear um, in journalism that their ways of doing things are, 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 are failing um, and that there's the, this sort of new order that's represented by the internet um, that has been threatening to their prerogatives. Um, it's a very classic tale of sort of the old guard um, – feeling besieged by something new and, and wanting to lash out at it and delegitimize it and, and discredit it. So I, I think it's partly that. Um, I think partly it's the fact that um, I've been a very vocal and harsh critic of, of people um, who practice that kind of journalism. And so it's unsurprising that they would react with hostility toward me. Um, I think that uh, it is the case that, that I set out on purpose to break a lot of the rules, the unwritten rules that they think um, are sort of sacred um, and therefore saw me as this kind of blasphemous figure who at the same time that I was breaking all the rules was also benefiting from getting this huge story that created a lot of resentment. But I really think the biggest factor is that American journalists, with a lot of exceptions, but by and large at these largest media institutions, uh, see themselves very much as part of the circle of power. Um, they identify with leading political and economic elites because they are within that that circle. And so they look at the world through that socioeconomic prism and they are guardians of the status quo. And so when something comes – arises that is a threat to political power – 
they react with as much hostility towards it as people who wield political power do because they are ingrained, they're embedded into it. And so, you know, you can say, well, it's not surprising that that government officials, you know, are angry about what you did, but it's sort of surprising that journalists are angry. But to me, there's almost no division any longer between those two factions. They've essentially merged and that's one of the problems. You have a fairly unique model with respect to being a journalist. And could you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, because I, I it was really the, the uh, uh, grounded in the genesis of how I began writing about political uh, issues, which is I just spontaneously created my own blog one day with no plan and out of nowhere. And so for the first year and a half that I did that, I just had my own independent blog and I wrote whatever I wanted, how I wanted every single day without any person telling me what I can and can't say or how I could and couldn't say it. And then once I, I started um, generating interest in the, the things that I was doing with other media outlets who wanted me to begin writing for them or move my blog there, um, I was willing to do so only on the condition that I retained that full-scale independence, which was something I was able to do because um, the readership I had built up became a premium for struggling news outlets that needed more traffic and attention and buzz. And so I could negotiate my own terms and full-scale unfettered independence was the central prong for me. And I was able to take that first to Salon um, and then to The Guardian uh, and now at, at my own news organization where we're trying to build an organization grounded in that principle. And, and so, um, yeah, I've written without editors and I've been able to just upload what I want to write to the internet directly without anyone um, being able to change what I've, what I've written. Uh, in The Washington Post, David Cole said that some of the things you've written about here very likely will undermine legitimate uh, surveillance, uh, under, undermine legitimate data collection. Right. What do you think of that? I think it's inane and absurd and and he's reading from a, a vapid script that is hauled out every single time there is unwanted transparency brought to uh, the government by its loyalist, in, in this case, David Cole, who is a big supporter of the Obama administration, although a periodic critic, but still a, a good uh, good Democrat. Um, you know, if there there's this this strain of criticism that gets very little attention that has been nonetheless quite vocal. In criticizing me and 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 the journalism that that we've done on the grounds that we actually haven't released enough, that we've been concealing too much of it, that we've been too slow with releasing it, um, I'm actually much more sympathetic to that critique and find it much more valid than the critique that we've been reckless or we have released too much. I mean, this idea that anything we've released will help the terrorist or somehow undermine legitimate espionage um, is just incoherent. Um, we are very careful about the information that we release. We scrutinize it. Multiple people do. Um, and, and I think, if anything, we've erred on the side of excess caution. You compared uh, what I think is, is best summed up by General Alexander's comments about uh, all signals all the time. You've compared that to Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, right? And uh, that—that's—it's it's just a very troubling uh, thing to think about here in the United States. It, you know, the the idea that the mere existence of a surveillance system, regardless of how it is used. Um, will severely limit and alter human behavior is something that has been recognized for centuries. And to me, the reason it's so critical is because there's this prevailing sentiment that says, I'm not the kind of person who threatens the government and therefore I'm not the kind of person they're interested in and therefore I'm not someone who's going to fear surveillance. And embedded within that statement is the acceptance of this bargain that says that if you become sufficiently 
obedient and compliant and passive and unthreatening. You just ignore what power is doing. You just go about your business, sit on your couch, watch television, play with your kids. You can be unmolested by power. That is the recipe for tyranny. I mean, in even the worst tyrannies, um, people who don't bother tyrants are never or rarely targeted with with oppressive behavior. Um, And this is what the existence of a surveillance state does. And it's what Jeremy Bentham recognized, which is that if you can create institutions where the people you're trying to control, inmates or students or um, patients in a, in a psychiatric ward, know that they can be watched at any moment, um, even if they don't know when they're being watched or if they're being watched. The fact that they know that they can be watched at any moment means that they will assume that they're always being watched and therefore will act accordingly, meaning in compliance with the dictate of authorities. And it's a way to keep people under control. And, you know, I mean, that was the essence of 1984. Michel Foucault said that that was sort of the foundation point of Western democracy that we don't have concentration camps and political dissidents and large numbers being hauled into prison because we don't need that because we've effectively put prisons into people's minds um, where they think that they're free but it's only because they've relinquished their basic political rights and on the grounds that I know if I relinquish my basic political rights, I won't be seen as threatening and therefore I won't be punished. And and that is essentially why a, a surveillance state is so insidious because it removes the essential part of what it means to be a free individual. Glenn Greenwald is author of the new book, No Place to Hide, Edward Snowden, the NSA, and the U.S. Surveillance State. You can read more about the NSA's warrantless surveillance at our website, cato.org.